came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not saved by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And the Sadducees came to him, who say that there, are no, there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, is it not the reason you are wrong because you, neither, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but God of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard the discussion, the dispute, disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said he is one, and that there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor is, as oneself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he the son? He is great and the great throng heard him gladly. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everyone. Um, I'm excited for this opportunity to share God's word with you and what I believe God has given me to share. Um, so let me just start with a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for today. Thank you that we are part of the body of Christ here together this morning. 
Thank you that you've brought us together. I pray that the words that I say would be a blessing to your church, that we would all grow together in you, and that you would help us to remember what you want us to hear from this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, just, <clears throat> just before I start, I'd just like to acknowledge that this sermon that I'm about to preach is kind of a collaboration of many different people kind of inputting into what I was trying to put together for this, this morning. So my wife Jo, uh, Carl, Brian, Ronick, Pastor Marvin, Dinas, and a bunch of famous Bible commentators. So it's, it's kind of a picture, picture of how the body of Christ works together. We're all together in this. We're a team with Christ as the head. So let's work together as we, as we live this life together. Um, so one thing, I, I just want to challenge everyone, adults as well, like as, as we go through this, try to remember or write down at least five things about Jesus that you think are amazing, and more if you can, and we'll, uh, we'll discuss that a little bit after. So starting with a little background, the Gospel of Mark was written as a narration of Jesus' identity and teaching, and to present his call to discipleship. Mark tells the account of the disciple Peter, who we know was very close with Jesus throughout his ministry on earth. It's a fast-paced kind of docudrama with lots of little stories about Jesus' life. Today there are four different episodes that we're going to look at, which Grace just read. These occurred on a Tuesday, two days after Jesus entered Jerusalem, and three days before his death on the cross. So Jesus was in the temple, where he had flipped over the tables of the money changers the day before, and he had just made the religious leaders even more upset with his story about the vineyard, speaking against them and their desire for status, power, comfort, and prestige, and rejecting God's will and his kingdom. Because of this and other confrontations, the religious leaders wanted to have Jesus killed, but they feared the crowd, so they waited for the right opportunity. So in episode one of this passage, which is verses 13 to, 30, to 13 to 17, the religious leaders sent the Pharisees, who were Jewish nationalists and religious elites, and the Herodians, who were supportive of the Roman occupation. Their question about paying taxes to Caesar was designed to trap Jesus into the idea of paying taxes to Caesar, which would then stir up the Jews against him or rejecting it and stirring up the Romans against him. Jesus knew their hearts and he knew the question was hypocritical and that they were trying to trap him. He perfectly avoids their trap by saying that yes, it is right to give the government their taxes because the government is put in place by God. We read elsewhere in John chapter 19 when Jesus is talking to Pilate. He says to Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. But this does not interfere with the need to give God our whole hearts in love and worship. Jesus was challenging the Pharisees to do this. The reaction that we see is that they marveled at him. Jesus gave an answer that satisfied both parties in what seemed to be an extremely difficult situation when the one asking the question, the ones asking the question were out to get him. 
He knows the best answer in every situation because he is God. The Pharisees did not know who Jesus really was, as we see that they were desiring to kill him. Their expectations of Jesus were low, thinking he was just a popular teacher that he could outsmart. With his answer, he blew their expectations out of the water. In episode 2, verses 18 to 27, we have the Sadducees asking Jesus a hypothetical question about the resurrection. The Sadducees were a small group of wealthy, liberal theologians. They were associated with the temple. For scriptures, they really only accepted the Pentateuch, which are the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is key to understanding Jesus' response to them. Their scenario is quite silly, but still possible. There is a woman who marries one of seven brothers. That man dies, leaving no children. She marries the next, and he also dies, leaving no children. She marries the third, and he also dies, leaving no children. This happens to the rest of the brothers until there are none left. Many of you probably remember the Mark drama that we did here at the church a couple times a few years ago at Easter, and this is probably one of the most memorable moments from the drama. One of the female actors stands in the center of the crowd, and one by one, seven of the male actors come up and give her a big hug, but then drop to the floor in dramatic fashion, as if dead. The Sadducees here challenge Jesus to determine whose wife the woman will be in the resurrection. Their goal is to have him either admit that the idea of resurrection is silly, or to prove that it's silly by saying that either the woman will be the wife of all seven brothers at the same time, or just of one of them, making the other six jealous or even adulterous. Jesus again goes above and beyond, telling them that marriage doesn't exist in the afterlife. So basically, he's saying that we're all going to be single in heaven. He also tells them that the afterlife is not like this life, that people are like angels when they go to heaven. Jesus then does something very wise to challenge the Sadducees to believe in the resurrection and the power of God. He uses the passage of scripture from Exodus, the account of the burning bush. Exodus is one of the first five books of the Bible, which the Sadducees accepted. Jesus says, have you not read? Of course they've read it, but he was showing them that their understanding of the scriptures was way off. He quotes God as saying to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. From this, he challenges them to believe that God is a covenant-keeping, faithful God who raises to life those who trust and obey him. Why would it be important for God to mention Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob if they didn't exist anymore? They were not dead, but rather their souls lived on. The point here is that Jesus is challenging the Sadducees to believe that just as God created the entire world and everything in it from nothing, which they knew from the book of Genesis. He can also raise the dead to life. The Sadducees didn't have faith in God's power to raise the dead to life. Their expectations of Jesus were low, like the Pharisees. They believed that Jesus was just a man who taught things that weren't real, and they thought they could outsmart him with their knowledge of scripture. But again, Jesus answers their question perfectly well, using the scriptures they accepted and challenges them to take their view of God and his power to a new level. 
One of the scribes overheard this and was impressed by Jesus' answer. He then approaches Jesus with a, with a question of his own, as we see in episode 3, verses 28 to 34. The scribes were an elite class of Pharisees. They were a half lawyer, kind of half theological expert, and they studied the purpose and use of the laws. The scribes' question to Jesus is, what is the greatest commandment? This is not a random question. Scribes tried to figure out the greatest and most widely applicable laws so that they could technically obey, obey many different laws at once by obeying those few important ones. We don't know exactly what the scribes' motivation was for asking Jesus this, but Jesus sees some good motives and answers the question, including with it a bonus answer. He said the first and greatest commandment is that God is one and that we should love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love our neighbor as ourself. We hear this a lot in church, love God and love others, and it comes straight from the mouth of Jesus. We see that the scribe agrees with Jesus' answer and furthers the conversation. We know that at this point they are at the temple, possibly in the courtyard, and the scribe would be aware of his surroundings. This was the place where sacrifices were offered in order to be in line with God's laws. But the scribe understands that the sacrifices were secondary to loving God and loving others. As we've seen so, so far with most of the religious leaders in the Gospels, they did not really love God or other people. But this scribe seems to be getting more of the big picture. So Jesus says he's close, close to God's kingdom. This seems positive, but in truth, it's kind of scary, combined with what we've seen so far in the passage. The Pharisees missed the point of giving God all their love and devotion. The Sadducees missed the big picture of the resurrection and God's power, even though they knew the first five books of the Bible. And the scribe is only described as close to God's kingdom, even though he shows a deeper understanding and a softer heart. His expectations of Jesus were a little higher, but he was still missing something. Jesus' conversation with this scribe made everybody afraid to ask any more questions. What were they all missing, these religious leaders who supposedly knew so much? Jesus himself gives us a clue in the last episode of the passage. In the fourth and final episode, verses 35 to 37, he's teaching in the temple and addresses the scribes' teaching that the Christ is the son of David. He then brings up Psalm 110, which is a psalm written by King David about the Lord God addressing his appointed ruler, the Messiah. David references the Messiah as his Lord in the psalm. Jesus asks the people how this Messiah can be David's son if David calls him Lord. Remember, this is right around the time of Passover, when the Jews' thoughts would have been centered on God rescuing the Israelites from Egypt over a thousand years before. The Jews had, in fact, suffered, suffered a lot in the previous few hundred years from the bad kings that they had through the exile to the present when they were now occupied and oppressed by the Romans. They were hungry for God to do something big for them. The people would have known that the Messiah would be of David's royal family one of his descendants. Remember in the passage from last week that Brian preached on, 
in Luke 19 when the people were chanting as Jesus entered Jerusalem. In the same story in Matthew 21, they chant, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. By this point, many of, many of the people in this story, the crowd in general, believed that Jesus himself was the Messiah who would properly save Israel. The people had great expectations for Jesus, and it's true. It would have been very high calling for someone to rescue the nation of Israel. But Jesus, just as he has been doing throughout these passages, blows people's expectations out of the water. He challenges the people to think about the passage from the, from the Psalm 110 and conclude that the Messiah is actually the Son of God come to earth, not just the human descendant of David. What if the people needed something deeper than just freedom from the Romans? What if the Messiah coming was not primarily about them, but about God's purposes to, res to rescue the whole world? When we went through the Old Testament as a church, we learned that David was a young shepherd boy who trusted God and was a man after God's own heart, even with all his failings. He defeated the giant Goliath to save Israel and became Israel's greatest king. The life and work of King David was actually a preview to the coming Messiah, Jesus. As we see in Psalm 110, David himself predicts his Lord, referring to the Messiah, being exalted and honored. This Messiah would not just kill a human giant to save Israel. He would take on the biggest and ugliest giants of all, Satan, sin, and death, and destroy them for good, offering forgiveness to the whole world. For Jesus, the discussion with the Sadducees on the resurrection would have been very close to home at that time. In a few days, he was going to experience physical torture, death, and spiritual separation from his Father in heaven. But he trusted that God had the power to raise him from the dead, completing the purpose for which he came to earth, to be a sacrifice for our sins. Let's look at an amazing passage from Hebrews Chapter, one, chapter 10, verses 1 to 18, NLT version, which Carl pointed out to me last week. We can see in this passage how it ties into this scene about Jesus answering the scribe's question about the greatest commandment. It's a long passage, but it's worth reading all of it, and I will comment on a few things as we go. You can see it on the screen there. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped, for the worshipers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. As we see in the passage of Mark, Jesus was talking to the religious elites in the temple where this, these sacrifices actually happened. But in, and, and we continue. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And you can start to see how this ties into the passage from today. That is why when Christ came into the world, he said to God, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you have given me a body to offer. Jesus offered his body on the cross. 
You were not pleased with burnt offerings or other sin offerings. Then I said, Look, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written about me in the scriptures. First, Christ said, You did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings or burnt offerings or other offerings for sin, nor were you pleased with them, though they are required by the law of Moses. Then he said, Look, I have come to do your will. He cancels the first covenant in order to put the second into effect. For God's will for us to be made was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice that pleased God and he cleanses us for our sins through that one sacrifice. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. And here comes the reference to Psalm 110. It's almost like the writer of Hebrews was looking at this passage from Mark 12 when he wrote this, and the whole passage actually. There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. And this Holy Spirit also testifies that this is so. For he says, this is the new covenant I will make with my people on that day, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he says, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. And when sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer any more sacrifices. <laughs> yeah, it's an amazing passage. I think like of all the commentaries and things I've read, nothing like quite, nothing quite sort of explains what I was trying to say, like the word of God itself from Hebrews. And so I think when we study the Bible, it's important to look at the Bible first because it, it explains itself. The beauty in Jesus' answer to the scribe about the greatest commandment was that it should first of all direct us to see our own lack of ability to fulfill it. Is it possible for you and I to actually love God and love others without help? No. But here we see in Hebrews 10 a beautiful picture of Christ's sacrifice. He is the great sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, going above and beyond all other offerings. Jesus knew his mission on the earth to be that perfect sacrifice for our sins. All priests before him stood up in the presence of God to offer sacrifices, but Jesus sat down after standing before God and offering himself. He sat down because his work is finished. At the end of the day, is there anyone who loved God and people like Jesus? No one. But we see that at the end of the Hebrews passage that God writes his laws on our hearts and minds with the finishing of Jesus' work. When we believe in Jesus, we receive his spirit and we begin to deeply understand his laws and commands. What is the greatest commandment? To love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. It's like what Brian said last week, that when we read the Bible, we read it not only with our hearts and minds, but also with our spirits. 
In the same way here, we are commanded to love God and others with every part of us in his spirit. This was God's design from the beginning, not that we serve ourselves and please ourselves, but that we serve God and others. That ties in as well to what um, Brian said this morning from Romans 6, that we have been saved so that we can do what God originally planned for us, which is to love him, love others. That's why Jesus calls us elsewhere in the Gospels to die to ourselves every single day. We constantly have to fight against our selfishness. Jesus died to himself, so if we follow Jesus, we do as well. We won't love and serve God and people perfectly, but notice in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, which we just read, it says, by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. That's called sanctification, that we are being made holy, we are being made perfect. It's a lifelong process. This is a difficult life as Christians, but there is a glorious eternity to wait patiently for. In the same way that Jesus challenged the Sadducees to believe in the resurrection, he challenges us to believe as well. It's like what Dinah said a couple weeks ago. Jesus challenges us to believe in him every single day. Do we believe that in the same way that God raised Jesus to life after death, he can raise us as well? This is the key to our faith. If we believe in Jesus, we have his spirit in us. And Romans chapter 8, verse 11 is one of the most beautiful truths in all of Scripture. This is how it goes. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in, dwells in you. So following Jesus means we have eternal life with him. And that starts today. One word of warning I have for all of us, myself included, is that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and even the teachable scribe were all missing something. They had lots of knowledge, lots of devotion to God's laws, lots of theology. They worked in the places where God's presence was and he was worshiped, where he was worshiped. But they were missing Jesus. They weren't there yet. They were missing who he was. He was, he was there but they missed him. This stands as a warning to us that we don't miss Jesus by blocking him out of our lives, trusting in our own righteousness or goodness or knowledge to make us acceptable to God. We can't be righteous on our own. It's only by Jesus' sacrifice. So to conclude, these are my five things that I see in this passage that are awesome about Jesus. First of all, he is eternally smart and wise which means he can help me in difficult situations. I often have trouble making decisions or having the right words to say. Secondly, he knows what's in our hearts. So rather than being defensive toward him, I can be open with him about whatever is in there, no matter how deep or dark or embarrassing it might be. Third, he is the word of God himself, so he knows scripture, he is scripture, and that means he can help me understand his words. I need Jesus to help me understand scripture and to see him in the scriptures, even though I think I may have a lot of knowledge. Fourth, he honors us when we come to him with a desire to learn. 
even a small desire. Lastly, he helps us love God and love others when we know we can't do it on our own. He paid the price for when we fail to love God and others. And he put his spirit in our hearts so that we can love God and others radically. Jesus will help me love God with all that I am, even though I am very selfish. Jesus will help me be generous toward others even when I struggle to be generous. Jesus will help me to love my wife and listen to her and lay down my life for her. Jesus will help me to love my literal neighbors even when I don't feel like it. Jesus will help me to go above and beyond for the people around me who need help, like the widow, the orphan, the poor, and others in difficult situations. Jesus helps us to do radically loving things that we can't do on our own. And I think, just as a side note, sometimes I struggle with this a lot, but sometimes I think I know what people need. Sometimes I think I know how people need to be loved, but often it doesn't end up, end up being the right thing in that situation. So I think we really need to ask God to give us wisdom in each situation so that our emotions and our own kind of way of seeing things doesn't, doesn't get in the way of that. So what awesome things about Jesus did you notice in this passage? And what difference will that make in your life as you follow him this week? Let's pray and ask Jesus to raise our expectations of who he is and what he can do. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are here with us and that we have been able to learn from your word this morning. Pray that we would walk away today having greater expectations of who you are and what you can do. Help us to worship you this week because of that. Help us to obey you and do what you're asking us to do and to see you increase um, in our midst to see you, your glory increase among us, Lord, as a church. Thank you for this morning. I pray um, that you would fill us all with your spirit as we go away this week and help us to love you more and to love others more. In your name we pray, amen.